0: You pray with me, Lord. We pray that you will make this word of yours bread to us who eat and seed to us who sow. Um, We rejoice in the good news that we'll hear this morning. In your name, we pray, Amen. I don't know, some of us here may be really excited about the reading from John because John finally gives some practical advice. So there are those among us who like practical application and, and, uh, and, 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 and like it when we finally get there. Um, like, OK, now we're getting to the, the point. Um, sadly, I will disappoint you, <laughs> because I'm going to hold on a minute on the practical advice. Um, my grandmother was kind of a practical person. Uh, she actually did not like the Psalms, one of the very few people I've met that doesn't like because It just is a little too sentimental for her. She liked Proverbs. Um, She liked the practical details. Um, It's refreshing sometimes to cut through the complexity and just get to the point. And yet, um, there are reasons why John gets to this practical information. And that's what I want to explore this morning because that's really important. Uh, Separating practical applications from context really disfigures Christian faith. It leads to kind of moralizing distortions. The point here isn't simply that God is pleased when we do the right things. And that's really easy to kind of slip into thinking that that's what this is all about. Now, it is important that we do the right things. It's very important that we do the right things. But doing the right things for the right reasons is even more important. And we can see that happening here because uh, the people were compelled to head out to the desert for a reason. And it wasn't the practical advice they were getting. Uh, They weren't going there kind of for self-help. They were going out to see John because they thought accurately that God was doing something. And what he was doing out there with John was he was reminding them of who they are by reminding them about what they'd heard before about the way that God acts among his people. And and John was calling them to align with that. John's father, in fact, a couple chapters earlier, prophesied about John that John was going to be an expression of God's covenant faithfulness. I'll describe that more in a minute, but that's really essential John is an expression of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel and that John would go on to give the people the knowledge of salvation, light to those in darkness, guidance on the way of peace. That was John's ministry. And so John's dad and also Mary and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon and some of the other people who you can read about in the first chapters of Matthew and Luke, they're reaching back very deeply into Israel's history and reminding Israel of who they are and what God is about to do. And that history is God's covenant history with Israel. Covenant is the key word here because covenant is a bond. It's it's a bond of relationship that God has established all the way back, well, specifically with Israel through Abraham. Very, very moving passages where God tells Abraham to look up to the stars and If he can count them, that would be the number of his descendants. He promised uh, a place on the earth for them, the land of Israel. He promised that through Abraham, all peoples would be blessed. Through him would come the Messiah. That story then pulls all the way back into Moses and the Exodus, where God demonstrates his fidelity to the Jewish people, to Israel, by rescuing them from the grip of slavery. And that becomes the Passover celebration. That we'll talk about in just a minute. He reminds them of Torah fidelity, Torah, God's way of living that no other people had. And that's actually true. No other people really did have a way of living this way on the earth. That comes to fruition in, in David, the great type of the Messiah who expresses the kingly, the kingdom nature of God's relationship with Israel. And of course, part of the story of Israel's relationship with God is their unfaithfulness which leads them into exile from their promised land and from the center of their uh, temple. But most important at the time of John the Baptist is the resonating promise brought forth from the, pro- the prophets that Israel's unfaithfulness would not be the last word. Israel knows that God will act again in alignment with this history that's the critical thing God is not coming as a stranger to his people God is not speaking to Israel as though they were strangers to him and so when God starts acting through John the Baptist and animating those covenant promises and that old language that ancient relationship people want to know what God is about to do because they've heard him do this before And so that's why I want to hold our attention this morning, actually, to Zephaniah. I want to hold our attention to the prophets once more because they're the poetic masters at calling Israel back to her roots and opening her eyes again to the vitality of the living God and his priorities. And they set the stage for John, the last of the great prophets, and at the center of of the, the the center of the covenant relationship are transformed hearts. Love is at the heart of the covenant. It's a special kind of love. It's a covenant love, a sticky love, a binding love, a loyal love, a love that kind of digs even deeper than faithlessness or infidelity. Now, with Zephaniah, Zephaniah is in the 7th century. He's uh, he's one of the last prophets just before Israel's about to go into exile. And uh, he's related to Hezekiah. Now, if you remember our kind of, you know, 32nd history of Israel, you have the, you know, you have uh, Saul and David and, and um, Solomon, the, the, the original kings of Israel. When Israel's united, then it kind of breaks apart for various reasons. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And uh, you have the good kings and the bad kings. And it's hard to keep them all straight. Uh, But uh, the train kind of goes off the tracks. Israel kind of can't keep it together. And uh, the judgment uh, comes in exile. They get moved out of the land. Um, All the way along, Israel's prophets are speaking to the people about this and trying to call them back to faithfulness all the way through. Zephaniah comes at a very important time with a king named Josiah. Um, Now, this is interesting because uh, at this time in Israel's history, the northern kingdom has already been kicked out. Uh, Remember, there are two kingdoms uh, for much of Israel's history. The northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom is taken captive 100 years before Zephaniah and moves out into Assyria. Assyria at the time is the great power. Now, Israel is a tiny little sliver of land that's always caught between almost like in a pincer movement between the great powers, Assyria and Babylon in the north and later the Medes and the Persians and then in Egypt on the south. And, And Egypt and the northern kingdoms are constantly battling and poor Israel gets kind of squished in between these two powers and it's a lot of pressure for a little kingdom and so there's all kinds of alliances made and God is constantly trying to say you can trust me uh, but it's really hard uh, to trust God who you can't see when you know you know when the armies of Egypt or the armies of Assyria are knocking at your door and threatening to starve you uh, that's hard uh, you know I would I would find that difficult <laughs> Josiah is kind of interesting because right now Assyria, the great power, people were terrified of Syria, but it's waning. It's on the way out. And the last of the great Assyrian kings, Ashurbanipal, he's not such a bad guy when he's not killing people. Uh, he starts a great library, and that's really where he wanted to be. And, and because of that, uh, we, uh, we discovered that library not long ago, and that's how we kind of know what's going on there. But he, wouldn't, he would kind of be the end of Assyria, and Babylon was rising, and in the ebbing of Assyria and the rising of Babylon, there's all kinds of intrigue as these kingdoms are changing, and all the little sub-kingdoms are forming alliances, and Egypt, which was squashed, is now rising. It's a very difficult time for everybody. I think it probably feels a little bit like what we feel like sometimes in our world today. Um, there's a lot of shifting going on. And so there's a a lot of religious turmoil. And the guy that precedes Josiah, Manasseh, is Israel's worst king. He's horrible. He absolutely capitulates to pagan idolatry. And what that means is not that people stop believing in Yahweh, the God of Israel. Even worse, they just kind of put Yahweh, their God, kind of along with all the other gods. He just becomes one of the pantheon. And so all over Israel, you have this massive confusion. There's idol worship and temples built to, uh, yeah, the God of Israel and along with all the other gods because people are kind of freaking out. Manasseh, he's a very terrible king and he encourages sort of idolatry. It, it was so bad that Israel very nearly lost any connection to the God of Israel at all. There, there weren't churches, so to speak. There weren't synagogues all over the place. People didn't have Torah scrolls sitting around their house. Nobody was teaching them. They nearly lost their connection to God altogether until Josiah comes. And Josiah and his people discover a Torah scroll in the temple, most likely Deuteronomy. And they read this scroll, and they're broken in their hearts. They're... Josiah, anyway, and many others. And Josiah begins the greatest reform in the history of Israel to that point. He takes down the altars. He centralizes worship in Jerusalem, as it should have been. He reads the Torah among the people. And he holds the greatest Passover Seder ever, up until that point, to celebrate the the deliverance of Israel from the hand of their enemies. It's a very powerful time. However, Zephaniah, who is prophesying in the court at this time, may have even been related to Josiah, probably grew up with him and read the same scrolls together, notices that for much of Israel, the outward reform that Josiah was enacting wasn't taking root in the heart. And so you can read this later. There's only three chapters in Zephaniah. It doesn't take long to read. The first two chapters really are a judgment against Uh, This dynamic of outward obedience, but inward corruption. But our text this morning on Joy Sunday is not that. It's the affirmation of Zephaniah that Israel's sinfulness would not be the last word. But in fact, there is a remnant of people with soft and repentant hearts, and they would be the ones that would receive the full weight, so to speak, Of God's covenant presence. And this is deeply beautiful. I like the word beautiful here because it what Zephaniah captures for us in the power of his metaphors is beautiful. It's relational. And I'd like us just to kind of hear this a little bit. Um, You know, it's relational. He says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. O shout. O Israel, and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Israel was called by God the apple of his eye. And that's what I think of when I think of daughter. Daughters are um, a a beautiful and tender metaphor. Um, Daughters are not the rulers of the family system. They're the ones that are protected by the family system and God says to Israel you're beautiful to me you're the object of all of my protecting fatherly love and so as we go on and hear how God acts we see God acting decisively and and he's actively taking away he's actively taking responsibility and acting he says i will take away the judgments against you and has and he will clear away the enemies He's not waiting around. And this is, I know, I have a daughter. She's, she's kind of a romantic type, and she loves it when I do something. <laughs> you know, she doesn't like it when I just sit on the couch. She wants me to be a knight in shining armor in a certain way. Not all daughters are like that. Mine certainly is. Um, she likes it when I step in. And, and she likes it when I can kind of let her be the adult that she is, and she's a beautiful, adult, mature woman. But there's part of her that likes it when I kind of step in and take the responsibility for something. God is kind of working with us and saying, I'm not not asking you to do it all on your own. You're my daughter. You're my child. You're the object of my action. And I am going to take it upon myself to make sure that you're delivered from your enemies and clear away those instruments of judgment. God then becomes personally present He's authoritative and in full control. He is the king. That is the apex of divine authority. In fact, he is the king of kings. And even more, and this is to me the most beautiful part, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. That quality of God of being in the midst is what separates him from any other fiction of God. No other God is in the midst like God not in the midst as an idol, or as some kind of magical bond, some kind of force that can be manipulated, and this was all very central to pagan religion. God is in the midst as a person, and that makes all the difference. Of course, you know what in the midst is in Hebrew, Emmanuel, God with us. That's why we're contemplating this text this morning. God in the midst is Yeshua. The Messiah, that's the difference. He is mighty to save. How is he mighty to save? This to me is kind of the heartbeat of the whole thing. The Lord your God is in your midst, mighty to save. Now I want you to hear kind of a rhythm here. He rejoices over you with gladness. That's movement number one. He quiets you with his love. Movement number two. He exalts over you with loud singing. Movement number three. Now, you can see there's a kind of a way that works there. And In movement number one, rejoicing is kind of similar to the movement number three, which is exalting. It's kind of like an Oreo cookie. And then right in the middle, we have a quieting. This is a very interesting phrase, quieting by your love. First of all, the exalting. He rejoices over you. Now, I, I... I want us to see here kind of in this movement, I want us to think of a mother, a parent. This is very much like a parent with an infant, which we have an illustration standing right back there. You can't all see her, but I can, and I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> we, have many, we have many examples. <laughs> you hopefully will relate to this, that, that exaltation and joy is probably the first emotion out of the gate when you see your baby. It was for me. All right, Um, and this is something that God does, it's delightful. It's an expression of delight over the apple of his eye, which is us, which is you. But as moms and babies know, if you only stimulate the child, they they like that for a few seconds, but then they get overwhelmed and it kind of turns into kind of discomfort or crying. There is something very different Deep that happens with a mom and a baby, which is the quieting part. Now, I find this very interesting. It's a rare form of this Hebrew word, Yaharish. It means to be silent in love. That's the actual literal transa- translation of that word. In fact, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, uh, of the Bible, the authors there kind of got confused by that word and said, well, that kind of looks like a different word, which is which means to renew. And because that makes a lot more sense uh, to some people that were translating, um, there wasn't a, a grasp of what does it mean to be silent in your love? It So uh, some Bible translations will take the, the, the Septuagint and say he renews you in your love. But if we follow the Hebrew here, to be silent in love is very natural and highly understandable to a mom with a baby because the quieting part is the most precious part. It's where you're quiet together. It's where you come softly together. It's where you show your love not in the exuberance, but in the silence, in the look in your eye, in the touch that you have when you're feeding your child quieting is the most essential part of the way in which intimate love is expressed without that there's all kinds of damage done in fact modern brain science would say that that the that the lack of ability of a child to be quiet in peace is the number one reason for psychological disturbances later on. The lack of ability to quiet oneself is a symptom that something's not right relationally. And I'll digress a little bit here. I think our culture is struggling deeply with this issue. Our culture does not know how to quiet well. We are active. We are stimulated. Our phones and our technologies are Immediately brought in we can't I can't even like when I used to travel for business and thankfully I'm not right now Which I'm enjoying that uh, feature of, of this modern era But we I couldn't even stand before an elevator without people whipping their phones out because that simple waiting for the elevator to come was too tense We are so agitated and our relationships are so fractured we don't know how just to be quiet together It's a major problem And what God is saying is that that is a root of anxiety. When you're afraid of your enemies, when you're in deep fear, when you're not sure of your existence, when you're you're not certain that somebody finds you to be the apple of their eye, your heart cannot quiet. It will always root itself back in the insecurity in fear and anxiety and this was the state of Israel back then, and it's the state of many of us now. And what God wanted to move forward into the life of Israel to say, You are my child. You're like a baby to me. I, I, I exalt and delight and show joy in you, and I also bring you quietly into the most secure bond where you can be at rest where together we can be silent in our love, and then we can just do it all over again. I'll delight and bring joy, and then we'll come together quietly in peace. This is a very beautiful metaphor, and it is not the only one. Israel, uh, it reminds me of what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where God says something very similar. He says, this is Moses speaking, God found Israel in a desert land. And in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye. What was Jesus' cry when he rode into Jerusalem several years later after John the Baptist? He said, I would have gathered you together as a mother gathers her chicks, as a mother hen gathers her her chicks under her wing, but you wouldn't. You couldn't sit still. You couldn't quiet yourselves. So this is deeply beautiful. What God is telling Israel through Zephaniah is, this is the way that I feel about you. This is the reality of what it means to have a covenant relationship. It's not just simply uh, a transactional or, or, or contractual relationship. Commitment. It's actually way deeper. It's the way that a mother feels towards her infant. It's the way that a father feels towards his daughter. And he says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival. I will gather you who are afraid. How many times does God say, Fear not? Verse 16, he says it again, Fear not, O Zion. Let not, the, let, not the, let not your hands grow weak and hear not from weariness, but from anxiety, from hopeless despair, from the sense in which nobody will come to help. God is always saying, don't fear. My presence is not like the kind of presence that caused you to fear in that way. So you can see why the folks listening to John were not asking simply how to be better people. They weren't rushing out into the desert to find out, how can I improve my game? God was always at work wanting Israel to come back to the power of this kind of relationship. And what he says in Zephaniah is something that has been held in tension, which is that someday, at that time, he will deal with all of our oppressors He will save the lame and gather the outcast. He will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, some future time, I will bring you in, and at that time I will gather you together, and I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of all the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. That's very concrete. Fortunes doesn't just mean I'm going to make you feel better. He's saying the very nuts and bolts of a covenant promise will be restored before your eyes someday. And in the meantime, I'm available to you as your Lord and your God, fully able to relate to you within your heart while you wait for the restoration of that promise. Jesus comes. People can see that something's going on, and they wonder, is this the time when the promises will be restored? And in ways that we could have never imagined, the answer is yes. God himself comes in the form of human beings, and he himself is going to disclose even more fully the nature of God in our relationship. During Advent, we're reminded that God has not stopped acting to fulfill his covenant promise. He came as Emmanuel, God with us, to take on our human condition for healing and restoration. He came to die as an atonement for the forgiveness of our sins. He came to ascend to his Father's right hand to intercede for us. And he will come again as the Lord of a new world where we will see him face to face and will reign with him. And he is preparing us now, just as he was preparing Israel for the first advent. And that's why we can ask, what then shall we do? Well, if there are any tax collectors and soldiers here, we have good, solid advice for you. Uh, But for the rest of us, we know that this isn't a formula. right? Um, John shows us that godly fruit is born of a repentant heart. And a repentant heart is just simply one that responds to God. Repentance isn't something that we do proactively. It's always reactive. Repentance is a response. Repentant hearts are open hearts that yield to God. They aren't stubborn in the face of godly conviction. They don't plug their ears when they hear God speak. They don't close their eyes when they see God at work. Repentant hearts say yes to him. And what the prophets reveal to us is at the center of that repentant heart is a heart awakened to the love of God, which is at the very center of a covenant promise. Hearts that are alive to the love of God are hearts that will bear the fruits of love. John says that, that the fruitless trees will be cut down. The branches with no fruit on them will be cut down. And later on, Jesus will say, how do you get branches that bear fruit? You have a good tree. That's a heart that's alive to the love of God. A heart alive to the love of God is a heart that will bear the fruits of love which God himself has shown us. Acting justly, forgiving enemies, showing generosity, not hiding from or ignoring those who are in need, showing hospitality, being ambassadors of reconciliation. God is very serious about bringing that kind of fruit in and through you. He's very serious about bringing his promises to fruition in your life. He's very serious about separating us from sin and restoring a bond of love that bears good, rich fruit. So let's do what Zephaniah says and rejoice with all our hearts. Let's do what John says and let's repent for contradicting the full expression of God's love for us and for other people. And let's welcome in our hearts, a life lived without reservation that bears the fruit of his now and coming kingdom. It's not something we can do on our own. Babies can't quiet themselves. Babies require a parent. Thank God that today it's no less true that we don't have to quiet our own hearts. Emmanuel, God with us, has come to do that work And to show us how our lives can be lived unreservedly, without fear, without threat of judgment, without threat of demise, without threat even of death, to participate in the vitality of that kingdom, which is here now in Christ and will be restored fully in a day that will come hopefully very soon. Amen.